Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. I was introduced to Buddhism in 1972 as a young kid. My dad had converted after he got sober. He was looking for a spiritual path that was atheistic in nature. And so as a part of his recovery, so he got heavily into Buddhism and started buying up all these books, which wound up on the family's bookshelves and along with my mother's books on Freud and Jung and Adler and Fromm and so forth. And so I was very curious at the beginning uh, what allowed the Buddha to become so peaceful and wise. How was it that he could be so content in his life and yet be so insightful? And I heard the words at very young age, uh, enlightenment and awakening. Uh, in Jap- and my dad practiced in Zen, so they had the word Kensho and stuff like that. I was interested just in how the Buddha became enlightened. And I thought it must be something that was very hidden, very hard to find out. But actually, the answer to the process of enlightenment or awakening was actually laid out very clearly, clearly by the Buddha in the Pali Canon. So it's not easy to simply jump in at first and grasp. You have to practice at it for a while. But I did finally, after years and years of study, starting in the 1990s, I had done my academic work on Buddhism and psychology. And I took some time off. And then in the 90s, I started studying the Pali Canon. And uh, I became more and more familiar with how to unpack the language. And I found a fascinating story of perseverance, a breadth of undertaking that was quite astonishing. It's not easy to unpack enlightenment in a single talk, especially a sing, uh, roughly a half an hour talk, but I'll do my best to give you an understanding of both what the Buddha said it was and how he achieved it. To understand what enlightenment is, we have to start out by just reviewing some of the most basic insights or truths of the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha. The first great truth is that with life, we experience inevitable pain and trauma. Uh, There is sickness, old age, death, grieving the loss of loved ones, grieving separation from the loved. And also many of us endure deprivation of uh, what we yearn for. We don't get to have the children or relationship or a career in the arts or the ability to travel as much as we long for. So in all life, the, the first great truth is there's going to be emotional pain. It's inevitable. 
There is no way to have a life without experiencing painful events. Now, the Buddha doesn't say that's all that happens. In fact, he will he completely acknowledges that there's many times that are pleasurable uh, and worthwhile. But he also just wants to make it very clear that we cannot get through life without experiencing traumatic events. The second truth is that we turn these inevitable, painful, traumatic events into a, a flood of suffering. How do we do that? How do we turn inevitable pain into unnecessary, needless, avoidable suffering? Well, he teaches that when we are faced with painful events, losses, aging, uh, physical ailments, uh, separation from the love, we take it personally. And we become so disappointed with the fact this is happening to us that we seek to escape the experience through excitements and rewards. We seek felt wealth, fame, power, sensual pleasures. We seek things that make us feel good immediately so we don't have to sit with the inevitable painful events of life. The evolutionary rewards of sensual pleasures, fame, power, uh, approval from others at first feels great. We get powerful dopamine rewards. We feel safe and popular, but very quickly dopamine wears out. It's not a neurotransmitter that evolution wanted us to have very long. It, if it, we did have it lasting amounts of dopamine, we'd never go outside and get food and hunt and gather and uh, mate and all that. So evolution saw to it that pleasure, this kind of pleasure of achieving external rewards uh, doesn't last very long. So what winds up happening is we keep running after these pleasurable, exciting experiences, and then we wind up frustrated and agitated when they don't last very long. We might write a popular post on a social media app, and then a lot of people like it, but then the next day we feel lonely or disconnected or anxious once again. We might spend a lot of money buying clothes or eating delicious food. But once again, after the feelings wear off, we're right back where we started, frustrated, disappointed. So on top of that, if that's not bad enough, that trying to get rid of the inevitable pains of life by seeking the uh, distractions and escapes of sensual pleasures and popularity. Um, the Buddha taught in the Iripakiyata that whatever we crave creates the opposite. If we seek fame as a way to protect ourselves from loss and disappointment, the more we seek fame, the more we become aware of times when we're lonely and not popular. The more we seek pleasure, the Buddha teaches, the more we become aware of the times we feel pain. The more we seek wealth, the more we'll experience times where we feel financially vulnerable. The more we seek 
approval from others, the more we'll become aware of criticism and so forth. So whatever we crave as a way out creates its exact opposite. And we can see this all the time in life. If we desire a car uh, and we start looking at all the other people that have wonderful cars, we become more acutely aware that we don't have a car. If we crave a relationship and we start to see how everybody else, it seems, is in a relationship, then we become more acutely aware of how lonely we are. If we crave wealth, then we become more acutely financially vulnerable the more we check our bank account or whatever. So whatever we crave creates the exact opposite. And so the Buddha teaches that craving, trying to escape the inevitable pains of life actually makes life more unbearable. So the solution uh, is to relinquish craving, grasping after unreliable awards. If we don't, at the end of life, separated from the loved, lonely perhaps, perhaps in pain, perhaps uh, disappointed, whatever, people desperately, desperately crave more life. Bhavanatana, it's called in Pali. We crave more existence because we believe if we live longer, we'll somehow get it right. This too, the Buddha teaches, causes even more dukkha or suffering. And in fact, this craving for more life in early Buddhism, when you die, if you're craving for more pleasure, more life, more popularity, more wealth, then what happens is you get reborn again. Now, from a Western perspective, being reborn sounds pretty good. Most people think, isn't that the point? Actually, no. To the Buddha was the and, and Buddhists, it was the exact opposite. The entire point of enlightenment was to not be reborn anymore. Not be reborn. Nibbana is the verb to, or nirvana, as we know in Sanskrit, nibbana in Pali, means to extinguish, blow out a candle. It extinguishes the endless cycles of rebirths where we experience even more suffering. So the point for the, of the Dharma and the practice was not to continue to be reborn forever, experiencing more and more inevitable pain and more and more craving and suffering, but to live completely at peace in this life, embracing our life as it is, cra not craving ways to escape the inevitable experiences, emotions of life, not running from our sadness or our loneliness or our fear, but actually experiencing everything with awareness, compassion, appreciation, equanimity. The key to all this is to live harmlessly with others. The more we live harmlessly with others, the more we find ourselves peaceful and capable of withstanding all of the negative internal emotions associated with the inevitable pains of life, the aging, the sickness, and death. The more we are harmless and compassionate with others, the more other people will be there with us to help soften these experiences. Rather than seeking wealth or fame, 
simple spiritual friends and internal practice are the keys for the Buddha. Now, in terms of enlightenment, escaping this continual rebirth into more and more pain, the Buddha said in all of his lives, he wept an ocean of tears due to rebirth. Um, we have to experience, if we want to truly escape, we have to experience some kind of enlightenment or awakening. I don't claim to be either enlightened or awakened, far from it. But I do understand the Buddha's teachings of how to attain it. I just don't say I've done it myself, to be clear. So um, the Buddha, in fact, didn't claim himself generally to be the enlightened one. He said he was the awoken one the one who, become, who became awake to the nature of suffering. So the Buddha said the fastest way to achieve awakening is through concentration practices, which means meditation practices where we focus our attention on a specific single object. That's the way, the path to the liberation from unnecessary suffering. So... In this, the Buddha suggests we find a specific neutral object. It could be the breath. It could be a simple phrase of loving kindness. May all beings be happy, peaceful, free of stress. It could be an image, a simple image of the Buddha or any other figure associated with wisdom. It could be Martin Luther King. It could be Rosa Parks. It could be... Uh, any figure that we associate with wisdom and peace. It could be shapes or a color. Um, it doesn't really matter so much as that the, the anchor of our attention, what we focus on is pretty neutral. It's not wealth or power or fame or sensual pleasures. It's something that's easily readily available that we can conjure in our mind. The breath is generally considered to be the most predominant and easy because we are always breathing so long as we're alive. So simply focusing on the breath is the easiest way for the Buddha to set the process in motion. Now, when we focus our attention, not on external rewards, like being popular, uh, having finding people to have sex with, buying, uh, luxury commodities or uh, binging on food or uh, intoxicants or whatever, but when we simply focus our attention on a, a sensation that's readily available, guess what? It turns out we secrete trace amounts of dopamine, and these trace amounts are sustainable. They don't just hit us with a wallop of pleasure and then go away like the dopamine rewards we get for uh, buying something or eating a lot or um, doing drugs or whatever, or gambling or what all the things that not people normally chase after for pleasure. If we simply focus our attention on any naturally occurring event for a long period, it turns out that the frontal cortex secretes an, an enough pleasure rewards that are sustainable over long durations. And as well, 
in the frontal cortex, we also activate the release of glutamate for energy and GABA to reduce anxiety. So over time, simply focusing attention, studies show, creates ideal settings for calming the mind and experiencing a little bit more uh, pleasure in our, in our internal experience. If we do this long enough and we reach what psychologists call state of flow, the glutamates and GABA fine-tune neural activity enough that we can really stay in profoundly relaxed, peaceful states for very long durations. And this was what the Buddha uncovered all these 2,500 years ago, that simply concentrating the mind on something that's readily available over time with enough practice, the mind becomes incredibly settled and peaceful. Concentration is known as a task positive behavior in neuropsychology. It switches off the stressful thoughts associated with default mode operation where we worry what's going to happen to me, what's, what, what do other people think about me, and so forth. The more we focus our attention on a readily available neutral object, such as the breath or an image or listening to sounds. Over time, we secrete trace amounts of pleasure, reward neurotransmitters, as well as soothing anxiolytic uh, transmitters, as well as energy sustaining transmitters. So it's the perfect cocktail. It takes a while before this uh, we get the right balance. And eventually what happens if we keep bringing our attention back again and again and again, we might enter a state that the Buddha called the jhanas, a profound, essentially altered state of consciousness that's achieved through uh, attention on ongoing uh, real, available, neutral sensations. And there's lots of clinical studies by Austin and others that show exactly how this works. And uh, there was, in fact, in the New York Times, an article about the relationship between concentration and experiencing uh, sustainable pleasure. So um, now we get to the point where the Buddha literally describes what happened in his enlightenment. So in the Middle Link Discourse, known as the Maha Sachaka, um, it's uh, Discourse number 36, the Buddha says that he gets to a place where he's so focused on his breath that, and he's evaluating how everything feels in his body, and he stumbles across sensations that are very, very pleasurable. And he brings his attention to this pleasurable part of his breathing. That could be in your chest, your belly, could be just a feeling of dramatic ease with the exhalation and the, the front and the sternum. It could be just a pleasure somewhere in the head or in the throat. But it's taught that uh, over time, he let go of all the evaluation and just sat with that pleasurable sensation. And using the breath, he spread it throughout his body. So 
he spread this limited pleasure. Maybe he found it first in his heart center or maybe in his belly, but using the inhalation and exhalation, he spread it all throughout his body and eventually into his mind. And in that he became, he gained access to the third and fourth jhanas. His mind was in, now in a state of elation and rapture. And eventually he let go of focusing on the pleasurable sensations and just sat in this state of profound, settled, peaceful awareness. It's at this point that he developed what's called a divine eye. What's a divine eye? Um, Diba Chaku, I can't pronounce it, but divine eye is the ability to know the past and the future outcomes of all living beings. So it's a pretty profound state. In other words, the Buddha could look at anyone and determine what their next lives would be like or what their previous lives have been like. This is what he noted in the teaching. I'm, I have no comment on it. It's just said that he developed the divine eye. And in the first great insight, he recollected all of his previous lives. He said, my mind content, I recollected my many manifold previous lives. I remembered all of my previous names, my previous families. I remembered how I looked in the past. And as such, he said, knowledge arose into the nature of uh, suffering, that he had experienced a lot of suffering in the past. In his second insight, he understood the workings of karma. He saw how beings that act selfishly are reborn into terrible mental states in future incarnations, it's said. So he said, people who acted unskillfully reappeared in planes of deprivation, the realms of emotional pain, whereas those who conducted themselves harmlessly with kindness and compassion reappeared in good destinations. So in his second insight, he gets the fundamentals of karma become revealed to him, that there's a direct correlation with how we feel in the future, with how skillful, peaceful our actions are in the present. Finally, the last great insight was the four truths that we covered. And the four truths, again, that in life there's inevitable pain, that craving an escape from inevitable pain adds even more suffering, needless distress into our life, that the solution is to drop craving and to embrace life as it is, focusing on living harmlessly, peacefully with others, learning how to cultivate inner peace within through spiritual practice, meditation, and mindfulness, and so forth. Now, if you think that this is a pure awakening, there's still a few more stops to go. After the Buddha has these great insights into the four great truths, and he's achieved this blissful state of settledness, he goes on to note that his perception of his body started to expand in all directions. His physical sense of self grew larger and larger the more he, he inhabited his awareness. And eventually, 
he let go of his focus on his body and just became aware of how limitless his consciousness was. As his body grew and as his mind settled, it seemed that everything that was knowable or occurring, he could be aware of and was all occurring in his mind. His awareness now infinite, he understood that everything that passes through awareness was impermanent. All things were arising and passing. And so he saw that anything outside that people crave is essentially going to lead them nowhere. That with the exception of wise spiritual friends and skillful conduct, craving anything as a solution for life is a dead end. And at this point, the Buddha experiences awakening. In the Nibbana Sutta, the Buddha says this awakening, he was outside of the karmic realm of just another being arising and passing, arising and passing. He was now destined to simply live one life, and that was it. His life would be extinguished at the end. There would be no remaining craving. There would be no excess suffering. He would simply experience the inevitable pains and joys of life, but without adding any unnecessary distress at all. He was, in his own words, neither coming nor going, nor being still. He was simply a being completely at peace, embracing his life. And this was his awakening. That is awakening right there. So if you'd like to read some of the basics of, again, if you'd like to just read the sutta itself on access to insight or sutra central, it's essentially the maha, um, the Maha Sakacha Sutta, that's MN, Middle Link Discourses number 36. Uh, or if you'd like to practice some of the meditations that uh, the Buddha said lead to enlightenment, there are other meditations. There's the Anapanasati, that's Middle Link Discourses number 118. And there's also the Emptiness Meditation. I would like to note some other things before we actually practice the meditation that the Buddha said led to his enlightenment, and with the full knowledge that we're not going to become enlightened, <laughs> that we're just going to practice it, and we're going to see how it makes us feel. Um, a couple of things to note is that concentration practices, if we only use them, they can lead to what's called a spiritual bypass. In other words, focusing attention always on something that creates trace amounts of dopamine and creates sensual pleasures, it's great as part of our practice. It's certainly the practice that's the most rewarding and enjoyable. But if people use it as their exclusive practice and don't learn how to practice mindfulness, which is not focusing the mind specifically on one object, but allowing the mind to scan the entire body, then feelings, and then become aware of moods and emotions. If we don't learn to practice mindfulness, then what will happen is we'll use our practice as a way to suppress emotions, and we won't achieve any great outcomes whatsoever. We'll be simply people 
it'll be just another version of emotion avoidance and it'll essentially lead to a sense of diminished uh, emotional vocabulary in our lives. So um, many teachers today only teach the mindfulness approach to practice, which is in the Satipatthana. That certainly a, can be a path to awakening. One, I would say, with far less pleasure and elation, but certainly more capable of maintaining awareness of all our disparate emotions. So this meditation we're going to be practicing is by no means the only approach to enlightenment. There are many, many others. Um, attempting to achieve awakening without the support of a spiritual com community of, it doesn't have to mean Buddhists, just people that you know are living skillful lives, not constantly intoxicated or obsessed with wealth or fame, but people who are basically kind and reliable. If you try to main, achieve enlightenment without wise spiritual, spiritual friends, Kalyanamita, uh, the Buddha says it's impossible. To literally quote, um, he says, if members of other spiritual paths ask you, what is the prerequisite for awakening? You should answer, one must have wise spiritual friends. That is the first prerequisite for awakening. So the idea that we can go off to a cave somewhere or escape the city and live in a remote cabin and simply meditate and achieve enlightenment will not work. It's an escape. It's, it, they will <clears throat> experience emotion dysregulation due to loneliness. This practice of seeking Wisdom has to be part and parcel of being in a robust, supportive group of people. And finally, um, uh, there are other later schools of Buddhism that teach even additional ways of seeking awakening. Uh, there's the School of the Progress of Insight by Mahasi Sayadaw and the Vipassana teachings of S.N. Goenka. So there's no shortage of ways to go about trying to achieve a greater degree of contentment, insight, and uh, skillfulness in our lives. But for tonight, we're just going to have fun, and we're actually going to practice uh, the jhana approach to, uh, to achieving hired altered states of consciousness. So with that, thank you for listening. I hope that that was a worthwhile introduction to uh, uh, the nature of awakening and how the Buddha achieved it. At least that was my goal. Going to have, this is a plug for hibiscus tea. If you don't know what hibiscus tea is, it's delicious. And it's probably my favorite summer drink. So if you ever get a chance to get some hibiscus tea, go for it. And so uh, find a really comfortable position. You can do this meditation lying down on a couch or on a bed. You can do it sitting up. 
there's absolutely no suggestion other than finding what for you is a really comfortable state of being. And uh, while you do that, just going to remind you, if you would like to support all my teaching is done entirely and my counseling is done entirely by donation only. So if you'd like to support uh, these classes, keep me going as a Buddhist pastor. It's uh, Venmo is Dharma punks with an X N Y C. So that's Dharma D H A R D H A R M A P U N X N Y C. So thank you. And let's find that really comfortable position and I'm going to suggest that you close your eyes, or if you don't, just rest your attention on a very uh, stable object that is neutral in your environment, <coughs> a, plat, a plant or a candlelight flame, a window. But uh, if you close your eyes, just bring the awareness entirely within and see if you can find the sensations that most clearly articulate the breath in your body, by which I mean, where if you right now had to know if you were breathing in or out, if you were asked to point where you, where you feel the breath most clearly in your body, just locate an area, hopefully an area that doesn't feel too tight, too difficult. Some people like to bring awareness to the tip of the nose, feeling the air coming in and out. I've never found that to be, for me, a particularly conductive, conducive, uh, rewarding place in the body to be aware. I prefer to feel my belly uh, in the Theravadan tradition where they feel the breath in the belly slightly expanding and contracting. For other people, it might be the sense of the diaphragm expanding with the in-breath and then releasing with the out-breath. Some people find awareness of the breath. There's a feeling of the body lifting up and uh, becoming bigger with the in-breath and then the energy in the body subsiding with the out-breath. Just find an area that you're going to observe yourself breathing in or breathing out. Always knowing whether you're breathing in or out. And for this practice, try to extend the length of the exhalations as long as you can, not pushing out the breath, but just very slowly releasing the breath as slow as you can. Making the in-breath very smooth, subtle, 
and then the exhalation very long. So there's a lot of eventually space in between the last iteration of the exhalation and the next sensations of the inhalation. And while you practice this, we're going to follow the Buddha's instructions and simply look for any really pleasurable sensation associated with breathing in the body. So this might take a while. We're going to sit in silence for a little while, but just breathe in and out, and the evaluation, we talk a wikara in early Pali, is to simply find where there's a really sustaining sense of ease and pleasure in your body. And every time your mind slips away, just Bring it back without any judgment, without any self-doubt, without any ill will, without any frustration, just knowing that it's all part of the practice. Just bring your awareness back to your breath dropping whatever thought or memory or plan pulled you away and just bring it back. Take a nice full inhalation and very soft, long, easeful exhalation. And just continue looking for a sensation in your body that feels really good easeful, peaceful, open, spacious, an area that's not tense.
Now, on the night of the Buddha's enlightenment, under the Bodhi tree, this process might have taken hours to find the purely pleasurable sensation that he was going to use to enter the next stage of the process. But for the purposes of just having a manageable meditation, just see right now if you can find some area of your body that feels very pleasurable. I've noticed oddly that right now my eyes feel very relaxed. There's very little strain in the micro muscles around them. So I'm going to use that. You could find pleasure anywhere. It could be in the palms of your hands, the abdomen, the heart center, the throat, the nose, the mouth, forehead, legs or arms. Find though an area that feels slightly more easeful. And then using the breath with each inhalation, try to Imagine that you're kneading or suffusing or spreading that pleasant sensation a little further through the body, making it a little more, taking a little more space for it. And with each exhalation, relax everything around the pleasurable sensation. So if you felt a pleasurable sensation in your the middle of your sternum, with the inhalation, you might feel and use the in-breath to slightly spread the ease upwards towards the heart center and down towards the abdominal muscles. And then as you completed the inhalation, with each exhalation, you'd relax all the areas around, release the energy associated with spreading the pleasure. Just use the breath as a practice to move ease up, down, and around your body. So it takes up, it consumes more and more of the sensations available.
Try to keep your awareness now on the sensations of ease. Just allow everything else to be in the background. Just be consumed with whatever ease you've cultivated. And the ultimate goal would be to allow this state of ease to eventually spread even into your awareness or your consciousness. So now you weren't just aware of sensations of ease and pleasure in your body, but there was also a significant change in your mood towards a degree of elation or joy. And of course, this might take many, 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 many days, even lifetimes of practice. But the goal is to spread, suffuse, uh, ease through the body until the mind brightens. And then when the mind becomes so much lighter and spacious, eventually we would drop our awareness of the pleasure and just allow our mind to be settled, open, at peace. And it was from that state that the Buddha had his great insights. But for now, let's just stay with whatever pleasurable sensations we found, continue to expand, widen, using the breath to spread states of ease through the body.
So this time I'm going to ring the bowl and take your time as long as you need to bring your awareness from this practice to a wider, more balanced awareness where you become aware of all the sensations that are important around you.